0: You're listening to Ladies Do Podcasts, the monthly podcast to accompany the monthly group Ladies Do Comics, which is held at the Rag Factory on Heniage Street, off Brick Lane in London. In this episode, which was recorded in November 2011, M.K. Chervaitz, aka Comic Nurse, and Sarah Leavitt, author of Tangles, will be talking about their medical-themed autobiographical comics. And following each talk, the two authors are in conversation with the audience at Ladies Do Comics, including organisers Nicholas Streeton and Sarah Lightman.
1: We'd like to welcome you here tonight, For anybody who hasn't been before... Um, we're, this is Ladies for Comics, and I'm Nicholas Greenfield, this is Sarah Lightman, the ladies, and we're really well-equipped tonight. We've got a nurse, doctors, psychiatrists, we've got the lot, so, um, you know, they're at reasonable rates, so <laughs> give you a bite. So, um, uh, my name's Nicholas Streeton, I'm an illustrator, and uh, author of Billy, Me and You Just Published by Miriam Editions.
2: So I'm Sarah Lightman, I'm, uh, I make a visual diary of my life, I'm doing a PhD at the University of Glasgow in autobiographical comics, and I'm creating a show called Graphic Details, Professional Comics by Jewish Women, that has recently opened in New York, and uh, it's going to be doing a lot more travelling around the world as well.
1: Uh, so our first guest tonight is um, comic nurse, also known as M.K. Sirwick. Take a seat.
3: Okay. So, uh, my name is M.K. Starwick and I make comics under the name Comic Nurse. Um, I have done several collections of comics um, that are, uh, two of which are on the back table. Uh, Comic Nurse is, actually uh, the whole moniker Comic Nurse came up because um, when I originally started making comics, the first book, Scar Stories and Other Adventures came under my real name. And my next-door neighbor said, you've got to do something about that. <laughs> and so, um, because my website was mkserwick.com, and he, he was like, that was a really bad plan. Um, as you can see by how it's spelled, unless you speak Polish, in which my last, last name means the month of June, um, no one can really get that. So I, I thought, well, I need a moniker, so I just went with that. And then the, third, the book on the bottom, uh, Comic Nurse Delivers Another Dose, um, is uh, just premiered at Thought Bubble Leaves. It was an enormous, <laughs> enormous success. Uh, but anyway, so they're all sort of, uh, you're going to see some examples, kind of single page, multi-panel, kind of self-contained stories. There's no real running narrative that goes through them. They're just sort of nigh bizarre take on things. As I told somebody at Thought well they're not so much about me being a nurse, much more about me just sort of being a goof. So, um, And then the, the project is a, a work in progress. I'm halfway through it. Um, it's called Taking Terms, a Medical Tragicomic. It's sort of a working title. Um, it's much different than the other three. Uh, this is, a, an illust- I'm illustrating an oral history I did uh, of an AIDS unit that I worked on from 1994 to 2000 um, that I consider to be an important place. Uh, I considered AIDS to, um, my personal perspective is I think AIDS changed healthcare uh, dramatically, especially in the United States and how it was um, as the disease sort of marched out, and um, this place that I worked at and had thousands and thousands of people go through it, um, I felt was an important place. And so I, I was making comics about this place, and I just went assumed that I would just go to Google and Google, you know, Unit 371 in <coughs> Chicago. And it turned out, after a bunch of digging, I found there was absolutely no historic record of this place whatsoever. And I, having known so many people who um, ended their lives there and came through there, that I just felt that was really an injustice, so I sort of took it on myself. And I'm not going to do too much from that, I'll just, if there's time enough, I'll show you just a few panels from that and sort of how it's shaping up. So I wanted to just sort of march through this because in my mind, for me, uh, comics are a methodology, they're sort of how I process the world. Um, And I thought I would run through sort of a made-up comic that's emerged just as I was preparing this to sort of show how that happened. So I, um, when I was working as an AIDS nurse, um, it was really challenging to go through, so back in 1994, before there were any effective treatments um, for the virus, I was sort of witnessing a lot of things that didn't um, kind of jive with what my everyday life outside of that place was like, you know. In my everyday life, my biggest problem was I couldn't find, you know, like, socks that matched my shirt. But, you know, at work, obviously, it was a very different story, and I was having a lot of trouble integrating those two worlds. And so I started making, uh, I would write, and for a while that worked, and then I I started painting, kind of acrylic on boards, and that worked for a while. Um, But then at some point, the bottom line was image alone failed me, and words failed me. And then one day I was sitting at my desk on this big piece of paper, and I just was in this state of misery. And so I just sort of drew a picture of myself. Um, And I never intended to make a comic when I sat down to do this. I just drew a picture of myself. And then I just put a few words over it. Um, And then somehow just after that, I just put a box around it. Um, (laughs) And it's just sort of what I did. And then at some point I was like, well, there you go, you've got to sort of go somewhere from that. And for me, this is really the ticket, is that I just drew another box. And just in drawing that second box, for me what happened was I went from a static state to suddenly now we're going to go somewhere with that. We're going to create a narrative. I always think about the gutter space between two panels as more like what um, oral historian Studs Terkel calls, He, he said his favorite question in an interview was, and then what happened? Um, and, and I always thought of that sort of what the gutter's about. is like, okay, you're sad. And then what happened? Um, and so I started marching out this story. So why am I sad? My favorite patient died, I'm truly going to miss him. Um, and then I just made more boxes and things just kind of kept moving forward. It was sort of like I've climbed on this train now and now it's just going and I just sort of describe about what we're seeing as we go along the way. I met him as an AIDS nurse. I knew he was going to die, but now it's real. We'll never hear his voice nor look into his eyes again. It's okay to laugh at that. <laughs> um, uh, and then, again, I'm just sort of keeping moving forward. Um, I asked another RN, crazy enough to love her patients, how she can keep doing it. he turn around. There'll be another person there who needs you. Uh, she's right, of course. Oh, well, hi, I'm John. I used to work here. Um, and so... Again, I'm talking sort of about process here and not so much content. The the interesting thing was, so I started in this static place of misery. And just by doing this thing, I found myself certainly starting to talk about kind of moving on but in, in some ways in a new place of hope. And so I just showed up the next day and did it again. And I just sort of, it, it really took and it really worked for me, not just for you know, an emotional state, but also for a psychological state of confusion or even just an intellectual idea that I was having trouble wrapping my head around like, I, I, I got a master's in medical humanities at Northwestern, and I would consistently make the comic to sort of work through material I was trying to digest. And it just for, for me, again, it's a methodology that I find really, really helpful. Um, and, and I also teach comics in a medical school, and I'm kind of forever having to justify that practice. Um, and this is a simple uh, way I march it out. This is your brain... This is your brain on text. And text utilizes our left brain. It reduces thoughts to numbers, letters, and words. Uh, Richard Bergman's a neurologist. Um, And this is your brain on comics, right? It's all lit up. Your right brain, you bring in your right brain, which processes images and communicates in patterns and pictures. And I've actually, before I presented this, ran this across a couple of neural uh, researchers. And, you know, they sort of laughed at how I've oversimplified it, but ultimately they couldn't tell me that this wasn't accurate. So um, I'm still going to keep using this slide. Betty Edwards said in drawing on the right side of the brain, half a brain is better than none, but a whole brain would be even better. Um, so I usually when I show comics in a... In a thing like this. I like to march it out panel by panel, but we had some technical difficulties. So I'm just going to read this through as another example. And I show this as a very typical way in my comics. Something in the everyday life triggers a memory of a patient, and I use this as a medium to do it. So the first panel there is, it's so hard being two. I saw it on my niece Maddie's face yesterday. There's just so much to take in. And she's saying, no, Carsey, no. I can't read this myself. Uh, she doesn't want to and I'm saying to her but sweetie if you don't get in the car we'll be stuck in the Hobby Lobby parking lot forever um, you get a flash of how great it feels to play in a sandbox and you want to feel that sand in your toes now but grown ups keep talking about winter and park and dark early now and too cold so you cry and you take your shoes and socks off at Nordstrom's when your mommy is in a big hurry um, and, you know, I have my shoes off mommy and she's like oh god um so then, uh, I don't, I didn't think it would work, but one time when Maddie was crying, I took her soft, precious hand in mine and said, It's so hard being to Hold my hand. Um, and she's, there's four courses wanting to food, and she's screaming, she's done, she's done, and of course she's dragged into a, a chair there. Um, and I said, it worked. I use it all the time now. And really, it's all we can do. Most of the time, we can't make anything better or fix things or make the pain or hurt go away. All we can do is hold each other's hand until it passes this is more recent. Early spring, daffodils, trees working overtime, air still cool. Palm Sunday, a mere thought, a marker, like the daffodils, but less so. Worrying about suffering, pain. It's so weird, she said, this whole dying thing. You don't know how or when, just waiting to see what happens. In the waiting, more worried about getting it right. Uh, And that's my partner there. Uh, I don't know what I can do. And me sitting there wondering, maybe my work just isn't good enough. The peonies don't have this issue. They come up red from beneath the soil. They know growth, bloom, glory, decline, dry, cut back, cold, then repeat. But they don't get to love or laugh, dance or music or tears or joy or art or crayons or science. We get all that with our uncertainty. My mother always says, all you can do is your best. That's it, really. All we can do is our best. What else do we have? I'll have a good day at work, honey. You too. Um, so I, I, I think I chose this example because I'm really often inspired by um, just sitting and watching you know, nature. And so people in the medical world have amazing stories to tell, stories they carry around with them for a long, long time. Um, that's a quote from uh, Nellie Herman in the Narrative Medicine Program at Columbia. And I, I, choose, I, I put this quote in here because um, it leads direct, very directly into um, the first theory that I ever, or the only theory I ever came up with um, on my very own during graduate school, um, is I think that that statement is true. I think healthcare workers um, and people who witness things, uh, a lot of things in rapid succession that are very challenging to witness. I think that they suffer from a certain disorder that I've coined the term narrative constipation. I think there's a real cautionary tale in not finding a home for all of the things that we witness um, in thing, in something like healthcare. Um, and so this is a bit wordy, so I hope you'll bear with me, but um, we're going to march through this. Over summer break from graduate school, I went to a lecture given by my thesis advisor, Alice Drager, titled Medical- Medicine and the Future of Normal. Dr. Drager's work focuses on how medicine has moved away from promoting and creating health toward defining and enforcing normal. She advocates for those born with anatomies that are, in one way or another, not what medicine or society considers the norm. Whether you're born intersex or a conjoined twin, too small, too whatever, you don't need to be fixed if nothing is really wrong. After the lecture, the questions and and comments were invited from the audience. An old man descended to the podium, leaned against it, and started telling the story of a child born intersex whom whom he was asked to fix. It became apparent that he must be a surgeon. He rambled on for ages. After about five minutes, Dr. Drager sat down, saying simply, "Let me know when you're done." The surgeon eventually summed up his uninvited talk by saying, "The problem with this intersect—about this intersect problem—I guess we just do the surgery and turn them all into girls." (laughs) It was as if he hadn't heard one word Dr. Drager said. He—she handled it perfectly, like my favorite aunt used to do when I was being incredibly obnoxious. She ignored him. This approach in front of an audience is a far more powerful form of disregard than engagement of bad behavior, and it worked. His equally old colleague later asked about the genetic indicators for gender, did the math, and said to the surgeon, you shouldn't have made that child a girl. Dr. Drager added, in that situation, a number of those girls grew up to be very angry men. The old surgeon tried to start up on conjoined twins later, but the moderator stopped him before he could get started again. I had many reasons to feel angry at the old surgeon, and I did. He was boorish, egotistical, and rude. He disrespected someone I respect. His behavior was obnoxious beyond words. Alongside my anger, I sensed that he desperately needed to tell these stories, which made me feel sad for him. By raising the issue of babies born with ambiguous genitalia, Dr. Drager had unknowingly opened a door in his memory that he didn't know how to close. Maybe I'm projecting here or giving him more credit than he deserves, but I'm trying to understand why someone would do something so drastic and obnoxious. It was like he wasn't so much telling the story as he was vomiting it. That's what I said. I said it was a good segue. There's
2: so <laughs> a lot <bottle> of bodily fluids going here. I
3: felt sorry for him because I almost know that feeling, although I would like to think I'd never behave as he did. There have been times, especially in the last year, when a lecture or discussion has brought a troubling patient story so powerfully to mind that I feel like I must tell it out loud or I'll explode. And if I do tell it after it comes out, I feel like you do when you've just vomited, relieved because it's out, but also surrounded by a big mess. (laughs) Talking about the incident later, I realized that caregivers are at risk for a condition, a narrative constipation of sorts. It's the result of not telling troubling stories or dealing with them appropriately at the time they happen. This narrative constipation is caused by the grief, the guilt, the shame, the doubt, the defeat, the worry, the pain, possibly even the joy turned sadness that accompanied a patient's trauma and the caregiver's role in it. That role could be as active as a surgeon or as as passive as simply witness, or both. With no recognized home for the caregiver experience that accompanied the patient experience, The caregiver stuffed it inside, removing it from the present, but risking that one day it will emerge. I suspect many caregivers, if not most, suffer from a narrative constipation to some degree. Like any other chronic illness, everywhere we go, with everything we do, it's with us. We're all nearly bursting with stories. So what should we do? Narrative laxative? (laughs) Rita Sharon says that caregivers should keep a parallel chart of thoughts and feelings about the patients we serve. It would be a very effective prevention, like eating enough fiber. But what about an interventional treatment for an already existing narrative obstruction? In the hospital, when constipation gets bad enough, we nurses are forced to do the most horrible thing you can imagine. We call it disimpaction. That's right, we pull it out. Talk about ugly. What's the narrative version of this? I'm not entirely certain, but I think that taking an oral history might be a better place to start. Well, this was back before the war. Scalp was wearing a sharp back then. Who knew veins, be beast's darn top. Lead like a pig, I'll tell you. So anyway, like I was saying, I think it all started today. Um, so, oh, so moving along, um, <laughs> uh, this is an illustration from the current project that I'm working on, uh, which again is uh, a, an oral history, uh, as that leads to, of the uh, place where I worked, uh, which is this hospital, Illinois Masonic Hospital in Chicago. The HIV AIDS care unit was called Unit 371. And um, these are just different depictions of the HIV virus uh, that have sort of come up with in the course of doing this book. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really going to talk too much about this. Uh, basically, this is sort of what it looks like. Then as I kind of, I do this introduction, I'm sort of then peppering in, and you don't have to read that. <laughs> um, this is the transcript of the oral history I did with, for example, someone that comes up in the course of the story there, which is his doctor. Um, and then this is sort of how I'm trying to take kind of uh, the effect that a lot of people told me from reading the oral history um, is that it's sort of like drinking from a fire hose. It's really all too much to take at once. And so I'm, I'm doing a patient narrative. It's uh, a uh, fictionalized patient Uh, and it's peppering this in in through the process. So you can read the first eight chapters on my website um, as I go along. So this is where I've gotten to at this point. Um, I was spending my free November mornings at Bob's studio then heading into work for evening shift. Uh, One night was bad, we had three nurses for 18 patients. Two patients died during the shift. One went into septic shock, requiring a transfer to the intensive care unit. Another had a reaction to a blood transfusion, and another went into a psychotic rage, then pooped in the hallway by pay phone. Sometimes that was a normal kind of shift, but at midnight, how do you just go home to, and to bed if this, that were really normal anywhere? Um, so that's kind of, I
2: think that's where I'll stop.
1: Does anyone have any questions for N.
3: I don't have a question, but I have a statement, which is I
1: resonate with every word. Because before I was a writer, I was a shrink,
2: and I think we
3: really got it. Oh, thank you. That's that's helpful, and I was hoping you'd be here to hear that kind of feedback, because I'm always looking for feedback.
2: Really, yeah. I'm in love with you now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you. Okay.
3: That's a really interesting question, and actually in the presentation I did in the graphic medicine um, conference, I addressed that, because that, I went through sort of a series of five great struggles in turning into oral his- this oral history into you know, a graphic narrative, and um, that was one of them, is whose story am I telling, and um, what you know, rights and responsibilities are involved in all of that. So, but I want to answer your exact question, and say again what your question was like. It was,
2: when is that story, how you story? Right. It's, it's, you're kind of carrying how you feel about them and their life experiences. I mean, you kind of have to worry about the issue of confidentiality, right. but your feelings
3: belong to you. Right, which is why I made this a, you know, which is really frustrating. Again, this is another of my struggles, and I don't want to take up too much time, was uh, that, um, you know, the Names Project, it was all about remembering the names of people who are gone. But there's, a, there's legislation in the United States called HIPAA, which is the health information, portability, whatever, but the point is it sort of binds your hands that you can't use people's names. And and I understand that. I got that through the medical record. But this person is gone, and I know that he, he, the person's story I want to be telling, would be so angry that I had to change his identity so much and his name, Um, but I had to, and I understand that. Um, But in this case, actually, um, the only story that I would tell again—I've anonymized him—but also, I had a needle stick injury. That sort of spoiler alert, part of the story. And, and to me, that was a very physical representation of when this story became mine. So, a needle stick injury. Um, so, uh, I'm working on an all HIV/AIDS uh, unit, and I stuck myself accidentally with a needle uh, with this fictionalized patient. Um, and so, to me, that was the moment when that story then became mine. Because then I was taking A C T and then I was you know part of that. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. I did, I did. And so I've got
3: that as source material, right? And it's interesting.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And so it's great to have that as because it's so you know, we've a lot of people have talked about this, but I think you talked about this you, about how I remember it as I cried one day. But then you go back, and I was crying for six months, right? <laughs> like, it's so interesting. Or, like, you find dreams that you had you wouldn't have known. So, anyway,
2: I don't want really to take more time. So, you yeah, know, thanks. thanks.
1: Thank you. <clears throat> and our next speaker tonight is Sarah Levitt. Sarah Levitt, (laughs) Tangles, over here specially to be with us tonight from Canada.
4: I was just going to say that um, MK's books are for sale back there, and I was reading one of them on the train from Leeds to London, and I was alternately laughing out loud um, at the stuff that her mother says or, like, little things that MK says, and and then getting all teary-eyed about it. Um, things too, so I recommend it for entertainment and education. I I live in Vancouver, which in many ways is a really small town, and, you know, there's a few of us who are queer who are doing comics, and it's just, I don't know, it's very different here. There's a lot more people. Um, So I'm going to do, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk a little bit about why and how I wrote my book and show you a few slides, and then I'm gonna read. And uh, for those of you who don't know about my book, it's a, um, it's a graphic memoir about my mom. And uh, my mom uh, died of Alzheimer's in 2004, and she was 60 when she died. Uh, so, and she had been sick um, for about six years, although when we looked back on it, we thought that there were probably things that, that were showing before then. It's really weird. I went to St. Paul's Cathedral today, and I lit a candle for her, and I'm still thinking about whether she's, like, cursing me. (laughs) She looks like this Jewish, atheist, kind of uh well you'll see she had a bit of a temper so uh i was like i, I said to Don, i was like i think this is okay because you know she's with the other candles and she liked <laughs> she liked people you know remembering the dead and, and that sort of thing but then i was walking around the church looking at all the opulence and all the war memorials in the church I don't, anyway so i just want to show you a couple pictures of my mom uh not so you can judge whether i draw her right but just because I wanted to talk about what motivated me to do the book. And mostly it was because of uh, how I felt about my mom and, and I feel about my mom and that I really wanted to preserve a record of her as she was in my life, both before she was sick and when she was sick. So this is me and my mom in 1978. And I was nine, which means I'm 27 now. And, <laughs> oh my God, you guys are so good at that. Um, And my mom was in. a thirties and this was like a stage when she, you know, like white women had afros. (laughs) Um, but she was always this very, like in all seriousness, she was this very protective, strong, um, protective, energetic, like that, very passionate woman. And this is a picture of her when she was sick. And, um, this is in, uh, about probably 2001 or 2002 when, Uh, she had been sick for a few years, and she was very tentative and fearful, and probably like too many of you know somebody who has Alzheimer's, and it's much more than just forgetting. Often you lose the ability to kind of find your way through space um, and to know where you are. So my mom was often very anxious, and I always say too that probably part of the problem here is that she's sick of me squeezing her, and so she's like, just get away from me, but we became much different in our relationship. And it wasn't like I became the parent and she became the child, but I felt much more like a somebody who needed to protect her. Um, and uh, I'm just going to show you... Oh, this is one more slide. This is Don Mose over there. But uh, one of the things about my book that was really important to me was I wanted to show kind of the whole story. And it included a lot of laughter. Um... And sometimes that laughter was things that were funny. Sometimes it was like you could either cry or laugh and they weren't really that far apart, which any of you who've been through a really difficult traumatic experience, you probably know that, right? Like the person that you love is like, I don't know, like, I was going to say shitting themselves, but I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm going to friend Philip but, but, um, <laughs> um, but, you know, you're dealing with these horrible... Difficult situations and you start laughing because that 's the only thing you can do and so my mom was really, really loved Donimo, and Donimo has a very uh, quiet, calm energy, and my mom really gravitated towards her, I, partly because the rest of us were so noisy and, and annoying and and she used to do this thing where she would like come up to Donimo and just hold her hand, but then like forget that she was holding her hand and turn around and walk away, but she wouldn't let go and she was very, very strong. <laughs> and so we would all just laugh as Donimo got slowly pulled off of her chair. Um, so I just wanted to kind of put that up there as, as to talk about that was something important to me in writing the book. Um, and so I ended up at the end of my mom's six years of illness, I ended up with this pile of sketchbooks and journals. Um, because my mom lives on one on the east coast of, lived on the east coast of Canada, and I live on the west coast of Canada. So, and it's a gigantic country. So it takes a day to fly there. And so I visited her a few times a year, and I would take these obsessive notes and and drawings. And uh, I had these things like I always thought that the things that she was doing and saying were so strange that I would never remember them if I didn't write them down. I would transform them into my head in my head into something that made sense. So. Instead of conversations like me coming into a room and my mom saying, oh, there's another person, I have one too, I would have translated it into my head to something that made sense when none of it did. Um, And then I just did these little sketches to try to remember exactly what she was like. She would always hold her hands all clenched together. Um, And... Yeah, so I, I just went around the whole time she was sick with these little scraps of paper and little notebooks and jotting things down, and originally I thought that I was going to write um, a prose book about her, and, uh, but after, um, after my mom, she died uh, actually almost exactly uh, seven years ago, uh, November 29th, and um, I kind of had a really bad, um, I, like I guess nervous breakdown. Intense anxiety and depression, and the I was I was trying to do a master's in creative writing and write about my mom, and it was all horrible. and And uh, the next summer, um, the next summer, I was kind of in the depths of my psychosis. and And uh, Donald was like, you know, Sarah, like these friends of ours are going away for a month, and they really need somebody to house sit. And I was like, that's so awesome because you and I can go stay in their house. And it'll be like a vacation. She was like, well, no, actually, what I've arranged is that you can go stay in their house, and I'm going to stay here. <laughs> so uh, I took my crazy self over to my friend's house and uh, my pile of journals, and I cut them all up into pieces and rearranged them and realized that I had this little zine, which I didn't include things from, but it's, it was this uh, photocopied, cut-up zine with a drawing of my mother on her deathbed on the front, and it was called My Mom Got Sick and Died, and there were all these pictures in it um, and rough comics that I had done, and uh, that gradually over the next four or five years became a book um, that I um, sold to a Canadian publisher, and it was still called My Mom Got Sick and Died at the time, but they said, you know, we love the book, but we're not publishing it that way it with that title because it's stupid. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I thought the, the, the title's kind of like, you know, edgy and stuff, but um, they didn't. So now it's called Tangles, um, which refers to tangles in the brain um, that happen to people who have Alzheimer's and also tangled hair and tangled stories. And I'm going to read these, usually it's just to show the first page and then I go through panel by panel and I read them out loud, even though you guys know how to read So far, nobody's complained to me, so we're just going to do that. Okay, you can all hear me and everything's all good? Okay. Uh, So the first chapter is called Nightmares, and this is the first chapter of my book. When I was little, we lived in the country in an old rented farmhouse. I slept upstairs at the back of the house in a creaky bed that the owners had left behind. The flowers in the wallpaper changed shape at night. Rats and squirrels ran up and down inside the walls. Evil creatures lurked under the bed, so I couldn't get out unless I kind of jumped away from the bed. I never forgot the chapter in Little House on the Prairie. I Do not do British people yeah. read Little yeah. House on the Prairie? Okay, so where a mouse chews off some of Pa's hair. I don't know if you guys remember that, but I buried myself under the covers until I fell asleep. But then the nightmare started. A robber caught me, or a black rider, um, which is Lord of Rings. Why am I explaining my literary allusion? I hate that. I've never done this before. Or a flying monkey. I'd wake myself up screaming, and then I'd wait to be rescued. My mom was like Miss Clavel in the Madeline books, waking up in the middle of the night. And I was Madeline, and something was not right. Miss Clavel ran so fast down the hall that her body got all stretched out. I'd listen for the sounds of my mother's footsteps coming towards my room. When she got to my room, I would pretend to be asleep so that she would have to wake me from my nightmare. She would sit on the bed, and she was heavy and real, and I knew I would never be scared again. It's okay, honey. It was just a dream. I had nightmares right through high school. She always ran to me when I called her. Years after I had left home and moved across the country, I had a strange nightmare. My mother was floating away from me. She was wearing a long nightgown, and she seemed confused. I woke up crying, but she wasn't there. So yeah, I had that nightmare about six years before we realized my mom was sick and maybe it was a premonition or maybe it was just a coincidence, but um, I, that little black and white scribbly thing is actually a version of a chalk pastel drawing that I made when I woke up from that nightmare. So um, this chapter is called Signs and it's a few chapters past the one I just read. Uh, my mother had very firm principles and she didn't mind telling you what they were. So I won't stop a whole bunch of times to tell anecdotes, but I just have to tell you that uh, I did a reading one time and this woman came up to me afterwards. She was very determined to talk to me and she was like, I know why your mom got Alzheimer's. And I was like, oh, okay, so how come she got Alzheimer's? And she's like, because remember you said that she was, had a very rigid way of thinking? Well, everybody I know who has Alzheimer's had a rigid way of thinking. So that's what happened to your mom. And if she hadn't been so rigid, she wouldn't have got Alzheimer's. So I said thank you. <laughs> it's awesome what people tell you, hey? Like yeah. when you tell them like Nicola's book is full of these amazing stories about what people said to her and, and uh, Yeah. I was often embarrassed by her zeal. She called my school in a rage after they used blackface in a play, lectured a waitress who used the term Jewish lightning, which means burning down your own business and then collecting insurance Um, and forbade me from having a friend over for dinner after I made the mistake of telling her that Oliver North was his hero. (laughs) She responded with this fierce immediate love to people or animals who the rest of us avoided. The ugly nasty cat, the crazy lady, the bratty screaming child. She really never blended in. After years of teaching young children she got the perfect job designing the kindergarten curriculum for the province of New Brunswick. Once that was done, she moved on to integrating kids with disabilities into regular classes and supporting homeschooling parents. She also spent hours worrying about corporal punishment, which was legal in New Brunswick and my part of Canada until the 90s, and cuts to the Department of Education. Until after 13 years, a new government came into power and laid off half the staff of the department, including mom. For her, it was much more than losing a job. It was losing a battle against the forces of evil. She despaired for many months until, I'm going back to teaching kindergarten. I was never meant to be a bureaucrat anyway. It didn't take mom long to find a job. She came highly recommended. After she died, we found this whole huge stack of recommendation letters and they were so odd to read because we were so used to her not even being able to talk. Mom did great her first year back teaching, but the second year she changed schools and things didn't go so well. When the kids were bratty, she couldn't control them. It took her hours to clean up the classroom. She was spending so long on lesson planning that she was working over 60 hours a week, even though she had co-written the provincial kindergarten curriculum. Parents started to complain. The principal brought in two young teachers to help her. Hello, Mrs. Levitt. I wrote the kindergarten curriculum. Did you know that? Over the Christmas holidays, she resigned. Meanwhile, I was having problems of my own. My girlfriend dumped me. But I can't live without you. I can't live without you either, but our love is killing me. <laughs> Thank you so much for laughing.
2: <laughs>
4: because it was really, it was so dramatic and stupid. And see, now I have to tell you this other story, which is that there's this part of Canada called Alberta that is, it's a province, and it uh, has a reputation for being really um, right wing and narrow minded. And I went and did a bunch of readings and small towns there and I was in a small town and uh a very small town called Red Deer which people call dead rear usually <laughs> really really tiny and uh but what was great was I was reading at this store that was owned by a, an out gay man who was the first out elected city councillor and and but during I was reading I was reading and nobody laughed at this And I looked up and there was this older woman in the middle of the audience just glaring at me. And I was like, oh Jesus Christ, what am I doing? Why am I reading this in Red Deer, Alberta? And um, so afterwards uh, she, after the, and I forgot that I was in the store owned by this gay guy. And of course the audience was friendly and, but she just kept glaring at me and she marched up to me afterwards. And I was like, oh fuck. And um, she was like, I need you to sign my book, but first I need to ask you something. You said your girlfriend dumped you did she ever come back to you? And she was actually just really worried about me. Oh. <laughs> I was single. Oh. It was so sweet. So anyway, um, yeah, I said no. Actually, luckily she did not. And I'm with somebody much nicer. <laughs> um, anyway, sorry. Uh, the feminist collective where I worked was imploding, which happens. And Mom, she, caught, she broke up with me again, and everyone at work hates me. Mom and Dad came for a quick visit during this time. Something weird happened at the airport. When I came to meet them at the baggage carousel, Dad wasn't there. Mom didn't know where he had gone. A few minutes later, he appeared. He said he'd told her he was going to the washroom. Then at my apartment, she couldn't get the sliding door to the bathroom open. She'd struggle with it until Dad or I came to help. She never got the hang of it. The next time I called her to cry about my ex, she thought we were still together, which is not necessarily a sign of illness. Hannah, my sister, called and said that she thought mom was acting weird too. She'd get confused about the strangest things, but if you tried to help her, she got mad. She's driving me crazy. She's just sad or angry all the time. Mom told us everything was fine. Maybe she was depressed about losing her job. Maybe it was menopause. Maybe she was having a midlife crisis or something. Maybe it would make more sense when I saw her in person again. So that's the end of that chapter and then I went home and I found out that my mom was indeed sick. We kind of took a year to figure out what was wrong. And that is it. That's my date. I thought it would be a little talk.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, does anyone have any questions for Sarah? Yes, um, I'm a great fan of your book. Luckily, having have read it uh, before, and I, I think it's a fantastic book. Thank you. Uh, and I was interested, I was also privileged to be at the Graphic Medicine Forum where you were speaking and you presented your work. Um, and I know that you know, there was a typical crowd of people there, but you included, partly because of the subject of the whole day, quite a lot of barter and stuff. And what I really liked about your Work was that you included the totality and experience of being with someone with Alzheimer's? I mean, I mean you showed a lot of lovely audience stuff here. That also was, and I was interested why you felt that you didn't you didn't want to bring in the more physical and perhaps distressing aspects at least to a, an unknown audience that you, you, you thought that, that uh, you didn't feel right
2: in Showing an example of that here.
4: That's so funny. I mean, I so, the examples so, that you showed. So, so you think. wish I had shown the bathroom ones instead. Well, not necessarily No. <laughs> I mean, I the one when you're
1: singing songs,
4: to, your mom to pee. <laughs> yes. Well, they you have to buy the book.
2: <laughs>
4: um, <laughs> we, we did sing songs to my mom to get her to pee. Um, well, it was funny actually because at the, at the, after, well, after you had the whole thing about embarrassing body stories, I was like, oh shit, I should have for all that stuff. But, um, the, yeah, in Leeds, I gave a presentation and the, the uh, theme of the day was stigma. And it was a day all about comics uh, to do with medical issues. And so I read all these things that I've never read in public before. Like, I've been doing these readings for over a year now. And, yeah, I guess I just... I, there's chapters about singing songs to my mom's social pee and cleaning her up after she's had accidents. And um, I guess I do, I do tend to read chapters uh that are from earlier in her illness uh and aren't so explicitly traumatic um but maybe i should maybe i should rethink that like i just kind of collected last week all the panels that had to do with uh cleaning up after my mother or having sex with my girlfriend so (laughs) you missed those yeah so so to answer your question yes like i i generally assume that it's going to be better if i don't if i don't read those Mm -hmm. chapters um and that I should read something from earlier in the book to kind of spare people that. Mm-hmm. I don't and spare myself. <laughs> Expose myself less. Yeah. Well, I, I love your
2: book, um, and also
4: I love book as well, is you include
2: elements, that you did some at the time. You did uh, drawings of your mother as she was dying, mm-hmm. that I found incredibly powerful. And school, like writing, she did was her handwriting was kind of deteriorating the same with Nicola, she's got this photograph and she returned home after. Do you mind what I say mm-hmm. <laughs> like to Nicola? After am just done you can ask her to take a photograph. And what it does is it brings you back to the fact that this is real. Mm-hmm. Because you're it, it so caught in a narrative, like right? you know, you suddenly haven't just believe in these characters. You can believe in the characters but you kind of forget forget a way that mm-hmm. it's it happened in real space and time. And I I mean, was that what you were thinking? And do you have other reasons to include?
4: Well, there were things that I really wanted to include. Like I wanted to show kind of the t- deterioration of my mom's handwriting as her um, disease progressed. So there's scraps of that that I traced in the book. Um, and there's um, there's like some pages that I copied directly from my diary at the time. And yeah, there's some drawings that I did while she was actually dying. Um, but mostly I wanted it to be... You know, it's funny, like, I look back at the book now and there's things that I like and things that I don't. Um, But what I really wanted was I didn't want it to be my diary. I didn't didn't want... I wanted, like, the kind of... The thing that MK talks about of, like, vomiting all my stuff, which is what I had to do before and after... Or during and after her illness. I wanted that to be here, and then I wanted to create something else that held together as a narrative um, and that was somewhat... Like, removed enough from the story, from what actually happened, that it was more cohesive and accessible to other people besides me. So, I mean, that's why I didn't just use my stuff. Like, I, I did my drawings, like, a number of times after, like, over and over again to try to get what I wanted. Did you
2: always keep diaries, or did you start when you started getting
4: in? I always kept diaries, but I became more obsessive about it when my mom got ill. Like, I would... Um, because I really felt like because I have a horrible memory myself and like I've always had a horrible memory of course as soon as my mom got sick I was like oh great I have Alzheimer's too but I think it's just kind of like consistent poor memory Uh, so I, I would write everything down and sometimes I would even like carry it with me because my mom soon got too sick to realize what I was doing so I would write little notes like at the table or Whatever and, and so yeah, that was really important to me. I really aware that she was kind of dying really slowly or like I also pictured it as floating away. Um, and I was trying to like, you know, grab onto her and, and we had never we hadn't really been that physical, but the sicker she got, the more I just wanted to like touch her and like hold her because I really felt I was very aware that there were very few times that I would get to do that. So that was part of wanting to do this book was to have this physical record. Of her and it's you know kind of desperate attempt to to keep her. I worked on it over a long period of time so there were like I guess about four or five years so there were times where I didn't work on it at all and there were times when I would work on it and it would make me kind of crazy and there were times when I'd work on it and it would be really good Um, but it wasn't like I also had to go to therapy and stuff like that Um, so, the only way I felt, like, I wanted to tell the story and I wanted it to be real, and there I couldn't leave out any, any of it. Like, well, I left out lots of it, but I couldn't leave out the really hard parts, because those were the parts that were most interesting to me and important.
1: One of the things, when I was reading your book, which really... Um stayed with me was the drawing of the hands, that sometimes you drew the hands and sometimes you didn't. And I was just curious to know
4: whether that was conscious or not. It's kind of a mix, especially in some of the earlier drawings, it's because I couldn't draw hands and so I just stopped at the wrist.
2: <laughs>
4: because I wanted that, but then there was there's there's images with
1: hands and, and, and to me it was oh well of well that does make sense because you you were just talking about how you were trying to hold on, and the whole physical of holding on to something, is, and also the caring, you know, the caring thing is we use our hands, and, and the way that you drew your mother with her her arms without any hands at all, that it's almost like, I just wondered if that, if you so, like that, yeah. if, you like, if you like what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> I love what you've done, okay. Nicola.
4: Um, <laughs> Do the really, like, what I would love to say to you is that every single way that everything's drawn in the book is intentional, and and it's more of a mixture. Like some of it is related to skills that I have or don't have, and some of it is related to what the effect that I wanted to give. So my drawing style will always be like really scruffy and, and simple, but, um, and yeah, and there were times where I like I really, really wanted to pare everything down to, like, I always wanted my mom's hands to just be a simple shape.
1: Mm-hmm. But also, um, I wonder if it's, what do you think about this Sarah Lightman? That when we draw, it's, it's also there's a part of it, as like you say, sometimes you really draw intensively and there's a subconsciousness that comes with What do you think of that, Sarah Lightman? Well, actually, yeah. I don't know say that. Um, She's brilliant. And she describes yeah. drawing certain scenes, and she says that scene, she drawn
2: them much, some scenes are very perfectly drawn very. And someone really expressive, really loose, and she said that scene just vomited it out on mm. us, And I think that.
4: sounds really good and but and with the hands that was a really important part for me because that was one of the things that she was doing that was really weird that we knew was really really
1: but it's that image that stays with me. It's the pictures that stay about the story that actually are in my head from your, from
3: reading Tangles. Well, it's interesting, too, because Brian Feast talks a lot about how you consciously create characters, character design by the lines you draw that signify that's that character as opposed to other people that might be near them that resemble. But that was always the cue of, like, when you quickly look at a frame, you knew you could go to the hands. Mm-hmm. And that would be, you know what I mean? I was hard to figure out, but it's interesting just in light of how we talks about character design. Mm-hmm. That's- I was, yeah, sorry if this is insulting, but how much drawing and writing did, have you done? Lots of people might notice before you wrote this book, because the drawings are so light and beautiful,
1: mm-hmm.
2: just
4: lovely. I I had always drawn, but but it wasn't like I just started wanting to do comics uh, because my mom died and. Uh, the first comic that I did was this collection of things that people said to me and my dad and my sister when they found out that my mom had Alzheimer's, like really stupid things, and so I drew ugly pictures of them. Um, but yeah, something about the experience really like kind of coincided with me getting more interested in comics. So I-, I feel like you know I'm in my early 40s, and I'm like a beginning cartoonist, and that's awesome. you're doing a talks, what kind of activity from the public, and
0: especially people who are going through uh, similar situations as well, you, you including mom and family. Have you had interesting feedback from other
4: people? Yeah, um, I've had, the responses have been really great and I've had really good connections with people who um, either have family members with Alzheimer's or who um, are doctors or healthcare workers working with, mm. with people with Alzheimer's. Um,
0: do you think your experience is very special and unique or do you think there are things that, that people will be able to learn from?
4: Well, you know, it's weird because it's like, you know, when you're writing something you're like, how much do I make my story accessible to other readers? And then how much, like that balance of specificity and universality. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, sometimes I was like you know, because my story was weird because my mom was really young and um, and, you know, the whole lesbian thing. and um, But I've had really interesting uh, interactions with with people who are, you know, more the traditional people who are dealing with Alzheimer's, like, um, you know, men in their 70s who are looking after their wife who has Alzheimer's. Um, I've had really great conversations with people like that who I really have nothing in common with. Um, But I think, you know, when you when you share a story like that, sometimes even if yours is kind of weird and, and different, there's certain things that people will find in it that that resonate with them.
3: Oh, no. I'm sorry, to your point, like I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and you know, your book is so amazing in that, you know, I cared for people with Alzheimer's and I mean, I, I've been exposed to that, but I learned things, you know, from your book that I didn't know. And and that's why I always, you know, in terms of graphic medicine and what, why we want to use this kind of storytelling in a medical environment is because I think, it's so powerful to hear that from your perspective and and it's so powerful for my students to hear that. And whenever anyone contacts me and, and says, you know, I've got this reading group and, and what, what book should they read, I just go right to those because I feel like it's so accessible and it's also so such an incredible learning tool as you as you
2: ask. I, I definitely think that they are similarities. Like I mean my grandmother too, my dad's I was pretty young like can just be or something like that and what you were saying about the hands because I mean she'd be plenty but she would always be like taking clothes and just the hands would always be busy just you know kind of like, twisting cloth or anything that was around her so I think there is like it was things like that I mm-hmm. think it would really it would be like yeah I've experienced that I've seen back in thank you very much thank you,
1: thank you.
0: For more information about M.K. Chervitz's work, please go to comicnurse.com. And for more information about Sarah Leavitt's work, please go to sarahleavitt.com. That's S A R A H L E A V I T T.com. The next meeting of Ladies Do Comics at the Rag Factory on Henyard Street, off Brick Lane in London, is taking place on Monday, the 18th of June. Guests include Kate Brown, author of The Spider Moon in the DFC, and The Lost Boy in the Phoenix comic. Other guests include Doug Wallace and Emma Haley, the directors of Self-Made Hero, an independent graphic novel publisher whose output includes manga adaptations of Shakespeare, biographies of various self-destructive celebrities from the 20th century, including Huntress Thompson, Peter O'Toole, Richard Burton and many more, and translators of a variety of European graphic novels, including work by Mobius, David B., and Frederick Peters. For more information about that, please go to ladiesdocomics.com. That's ladies spelt ez Before next month's meeting, there's also an intriguing event taking place at Gosh Comics in Soho, in which small press cartoonist Jeffrey Lewis will be travelling over from New York to present a selection of work from his sketchbooks and signing his small press comics. That's on Saturday June the 2nd from 7pm. Then on the 7th of June, in Brockley in South East London, at the Talbot Pub, 2 Turret Road, SE4 1QG, there's a panel discussion about the work of local authors, including Kieran Gillen, writer of Uncanny X-Men, Howard Hardiman, Sarah Gordon, and Julia Scheele, writer and illustrators of the Peckham House for Invalids, Simon Lear, author of Fluffy and Please God Find Me a Husband, Sarah McIntyre, creator of Vernon Lettuce and Morris the Mancius Monster, Woodrow Phoenix, author of Rumble Strip, and Gary Northfield, creator of Derek the Sheep and Gary's Garden. That event is part of the Broccoli Max Festival, which is taking place all over Broccoli from the 1st of June to the 7th. The nearest stations to the Talbot are St John's, which is on the train line from Charing Cross and London Bridge, and Lewisham, on the same train line and on the DLR. Ladies Do podcast was recorded and edited by Alex Fitch, and there'll be a new episode online next month. Thanks for listening.